Totem and Taboo Resemblances Between the Psychic Lives of Savages and Neurotics by Professor Dr. Sigmund Freud, translated by A. A. Brill. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Totem and Taboo, Chapter 2 Taboo and the Ambivalence of Emotions, Part 3. C. The Taboo of the Dead. We know that the dead are mighty rulers. We may be surprised to learn that they are regarded as enemies. Among most primitive people, the taboo of the dead displays, if we may keep to our infection analogy, a peculiar virulence. It manifests itself in the first place in the consequences which result from contact with the dead and in the treatment of mourners for the dead. Among the Maori, anyone who had touched a corpse or who had taken part in its interment became extremely unclean and was almost cut off from intercourse with his fellow beings. He was, as we say, boycotted. He could not enter a house or approach persons or objects without infecting them with the same properties. He could not even touch his food with his own hands, which were now unclean and therefore quite useless to him. His food was put on the ground, and he had no alternative except to seize it as best he could, with his lips and teeth, while he held his hands behind his back. Occasionally, he could be fed by another person who helped him to his food with outstretched arms, so as not to touch the unfortunate one himself. But this assistant was then in turn subjected to almost equally oppressive restrictions. Almost every village contained some altogether disreputable individual, ostracized by society, whose wretched existence depended upon people's charity. This creature alone was allowed within arm's length of a person who had fulfilled the last duty towards the deceased. But as soon as the period of segregation was over, and the person rendered unclean through the corpse, could again mingle with his fellow beings, all the dishes which he had used during the dangerous period were broken, and all his clothing was thrown away. The taboo customs after bodily contact with the dead are the same all over Polynesia, in Melanesia, and part of Africa. Their most constant feature is the prohibition against handling one's food and the consequent necessity of being fed by somebody else. It is noteworthy that in Polynesia, or perhaps only in Hawaii, priest kings were subject to the same restrictions during the exercise of holy functions. In the taboo of the dead on the island of Tonga, the abatement and gradual abolition of the prohibitions through the individual's own taboo power are clearly shown. A person who touched the corpse of a dead chieftain was unclean for ten months, but if he was himself a chief, he was unclean for only three, four, or five months, according to the rank of the deceased. If it was the corpse of the idolized head chief, even the greatest chiefs became taboo for ten months. These savages are so certain that anyone who violates these taboo rules must become seriously ill and die, that according to the opinion of an observer, they have never yet dared to convince themselves of the contrary. The taboo restrictions imposed upon persons whose contact with the dead is to be understood in the transferred sense, namely, the mourning relatives, such as widows and widowers, are essentially the same as those mentioned above, but they are of greater interest for the point we are trying to make. In the rules hitherto mentioned, we see only the typical expression of the virulence and power of diffusion of the taboo. 
in those about to be cited we catch a gleam of the motives including both the ostensible ones and those which may be regarded as the underlying and genuine motives among the shuswap in british columbia widows and widowers have to remain segregated during their period of mourning they must not use their hands to touch the body or the head and all utensils used by them must not be used by anyone else no hunter will want to approach the hut in which such mourners live for that would bring misfortune if the shadow of one of the mourners should fall on him he would become ill the mourners sleep on thorn bushes with which they also surround their beds this last precaution is meant to keep off the spirit of the deceased plainer still is the reported custom of other north american tribes where the widow after the death of her husband has to wear a kind of trousers of dried grass in order to make herself inaccessible to the approach of the spirit thus it is quite obvious that touching in the transferred sense is after all understood only as bodily contact since the spirit of the deceased does not leave his kin and does not desist from hovering about them during the period of mourning among the agotenos who live in palawan one of the philippine islands a widow may not leave her hut for the first seven or eight days after her husband's death except at night when she need not expect encounters whoever sees her is in danger of immediate death and therefore she herself warns others of her approach by hitting the trees with a wooden stick with every step she takes these trees all wither another observation explains the nature of the danger inherent in a widow in the district of Makio, British New Guinea, a widower forfeits all civil rights and lives like an outlaw. He may not tend a garden or show himself in public or enter the village or go on the street. He slinks about like an animal in the high grass or in the bushes and must hide in a thicket if he sees anybody, especially a woman, approaching. This last hint makes it easy for us to trace back the danger of the widower or widow to the danger of temptation the husband who has lost his wife must evade the desire for a substitute the widow has to contend with the same wish and beside this she may arouse the desire of other men because she is without a master every such satisfaction through a substitute runs contrary to the intention of mourning and would cause the anger of the spirit to flare up one of the most surprising but at the same time one of the most instructive taboo customs of mourning among primitive races is the prohibition against pronouncing the name of the deceased this is very widespread and has been subjected to many modifications with important consequences aside from the australians and the polynesians who usually show us taboo customs in their best state of preservation we also find this prohibition among races so far apart and unrelated to each other as the samogis in siberia and the todas in south india the mongolians of tartary and the tuaregs of sahara the aino of japan and the akamba and nandi in central africa the Tinguanes in the Philippines, and the inhabitants of the Nicobari Islands and of Madagascar and Borneo. Among some of these races, the prohibition and its consequences hold good only for the period of mourning, while in others it remains permanent. But in all cases it seems to diminish with the lapse of time after the death. 
The avoidance of the name of the deceased is as a rule kept up with extraordinary severity. Thus among many South American tribes it is considered the gravest insult to the survivors to pronounce the name of the deceased in their presence, and the penalty set for it is no less than that for the slaying itself. At first it is not easy to guess why the mention of the name should be abominated, but the dangers associated with it have called into being a whole series of interesting and important expedients to avoid this. Thus the Maasai in Africa have hit upon the evasion of changing the name of the deceased immediately upon his death. He may now be mentioned without dread by this new name, while all the prohibitions remain attached to the old name. It seems to be assumed that the ghost does not know his new name and will not find it out. The Australian tribes in Adelaide and in Counter Bay are so consistently cautious that when a death occurs, almost every person who has the same name as the deceased, or a very similar one, exchanges it for another. Sometimes, by a further extension of the same idea, seen among several tribes in Victoria and in North America, all the relatives of the deceased change their names regardless of whether their names resemble the name of the deceased in sound. Among the Guaycuru in Paraguay, the chief used to give new names to all the members of the tribe on such sad occasions, which they then remembered as if they had always had them. Furthermore, if the deceased had the same name as an animal or object, etc., some of the races just enumerated thought it necessary to give these animals and objects new names, in order not to be reminded of the deceased when they mentioned them. Through this there must have resulted a never-ceasing change of vocabulary, which caused a good deal of difficulty for the missionaries, especially where the interdiction upon a name was permanent. In the seven years which the missionary Dapreshover spent among the Abapons in Paraguay, the name for jaguar was changed three times, and the words for crocodile, thorns, and animal slaughter underwent a similar fate. But the dread of pronouncing a name which has belonged to a deceased person extends also to the mention of everything in which the deceased had any part, and a further important result of this process of suppression is that these races have no tradition or any historical reminiscences so that we encounter the greatest difficulties in investigating their past history. Among a number of these primitive races, compensating customs have also been established in order to reawaken the names of the deceased after a long period of mourning. They are bestowed upon children who are regarded as reincarnations of the dead. The strangeness of this taboo on names diminishes if we bear in mind that the savage looks upon his name as an essential part and an important possession of his personality and that he ascribes the full significance of things to words. Our children do the same, as I have shown elsewhere, and therefore they are never satisfied with accepting a meaningless verbal similarity, but consistently conclude that when two things have identical names, a deeper correspondence between them must exist. Numerous peculiarities of normal behavior may lead civilized man to conclude that he too is not yet as far removed as he thinks from attributing the importance of things to mere names and feeling that his name has become peculiarly identified with his person. This is corroborated by psychoanalytic experiences, where there is much occasion to point out the importance of names in unconscious thought activity. 
as was to be expected the compulsion neurotics behave just like savages in regard to names they show the full complex sensitiveness toward the utterance and hearing of special words as do also other neurotics and derive a good many often serious inhibitions from their treatment of their own name one of these taboo patients whom i knew had adopted the avoidance of writing down her name for fear that it might get into somebody's hands who thus would come into possession of a piece of her personality in her frenzied faithfulness which she needed to protect herself against the temptations of her fantasy she had created for herself the commandment not to give away anything of her personality to this belonged first of all her name then by further application her handwriting so that she finally gave up writing thus it no longer seemed strange to us that savages should consider a dead person's name as a part of his personality and that it should be subjected to the same taboo as the deceased calling a dead person by name can also be traced back to contact with him so that we can turn our attention to the more inclusive problem of why this contact is visited with such a severe taboo the nearest explanation would point to the natural horror which a corpse inspires especially in view of the changes so soon noticeable after death mourning for a dead person must also be considered as a sufficient motive for everything which has reference to him but horror of the corpse evidently does not cover all the details of taboo rules and mourning can never explain to us why the mention of the dead is a severe insult to his survivors on the contrary mourning loves to preoccupy itself with the deceased to elaborate his memory and preserve it for the longest possible time something besides mourning must be made responsible for the peculiarities of taboo customs something which evidently serves a different purpose it is this very taboo on names which reveals this still unknown motive and if the customs did not tell us about it we would find out from the statements of the mourning savages themselves for they do not conceal the fact that they fear the presence and the return of the spirit of a dead person they practice a host of ceremonies to keep him off and banish him they look upon the mention of his name as a conjuration which must result in his immediate presence they therefore consistently do everything to avoid conjuring and awakening a dead person they disguise themselves in order that the spirit may not recognize them they distort either his name or their own and become infuriated when a ruthless stranger incites the spirit against his survivors by mentioning his name we can hardly avoid the conclusion that they suffer according to one's expression from the fear of his soul now turned into a demon with this understanding we approach one's conception who as we have heard sees the nature of taboo and the fear of demons the assumption which this theory makes namely that immediately after death the beloved member of a family becomes a demon from whom the survivors have nothing but hostility to expect so that they must protect themselves by every means from his evil desires is so peculiar that our first impulse is not to believe it yet almost all competent authors agree as to this interpretation of primitive races westermark who in my opinion gives altogether too little consideration to taboo makes this statement quote, 
on the whole facts lead me to conclude that the dead are more frequently regarded as enemies than as friends and that jeevans and grant allen are wrong in their assertion that it was formerly believed that the malevolence of the dead was as a rule directed only against strangers while they were paternally concerned about the life and welfare of their descendants and members of their clan r kleinpaul has written an impressive book in which he makes use of the remnants of the old belief in souls among civilized races to show the relation between the living and the dead according to him too this relation culminates in the conviction that the dead thirsting for blood draw the living after them the living did not feel themselves safe from the persecutions of the dead until a body of water had been put between them this is why it was preferred to bury the dead on islands or to bring them to the other side of a river the expressions here and beyond originated in this way later moderation has restricted the malevolence of the dead to those categories where a peculiar right to feel rancor had to be admitted such as the murdered who pursue their murderer as evil spirits and those who like brides had died with their longings unsatisfied kleinpaul believes that originally however the dead were all vampires who bore ill will to the living and strove to harm them and deprive them of life it was the corpse that first furnished the conception of an evil spirit the hypothesis that those whom we love best turn into demons after death obviously allows us to put a further question what prompted primitive races to ascribe such a change of sentiment to the beloved dead why did they make demons out of them according to westermark this question is easily answered quote, as death is usually considered the worst calamity that can overtake man it is believed that the deceased are very dissatisfied with their lot primitive races believe that death comes only through being slain whether by violence or by magic and this is considered already sufficient reason for the soul to be vindictive and irritable the soul presumably envies the living and longs for the company of its former kin we can therefore understand that the soul should seek to kill them with diseases in order to be reunited with them a further explanation of the malevolence ascribed to souls lies in the instinctive fear of them which is itself the result of the fear of death our study of psychoneurotic disturbances points to a more comprehensive explanation which includes that of westermark when a wife loses her husband or a daughter her mother it not infrequently happens that the survivor is afflicted with tormenting scruples called obsessive reproaches which raise a question whether she herself has not been guilty through carelessness or neglect of the death of the beloved person no recalling of the care with which she nursed the invalid or direct refutation of the asserted guilt can put an end to the torture which is the pathological expression of mourning and which in time slowly subsides psychoanalytic investigation of such cases has made us acquainted with the secret mainsprings of this affliction we have ascertained that these obsessive reproaches are in a certain sense justified and therefore are immune to refutation or objections not that the mourner has really been guilty of the death or that she has really been careless as the obsessive reproach asserts but still there was something in her 
a wish of which she herself was unaware which was not displeased with the fact that death came and which would have brought it about sooner had it been strong enough the reproach now reacts against this unconscious wish after the death of the beloved person such hostility hidden in the unconscious behind tender love exists in almost all cases of intensive emotional allegiance to a particular person indeed it represents the classic case the prototype of the ambivalence of human emotions there is always more or less of this ambivalence in everybody's disposition normally it is not strong enough to give rise to the obsessive reproaches we have described but where there is abundant predisposition for it it manifests itself in the relation to those we love most precisely where you would least expect it the disposition to compulsion neurosis which we have so often taken for comparison with taboo problems is distinguished by a particularly high degree of this original ambivalence of emotion we now know how to explain the supposed demonism of recently departed souls and the necessity of being protected against their hostility through taboo rules by assuming a similar high degree of ambivalence in the emotional life of primitive races such as psychoanalysis ascribes to persons suffering from compulsion neurosis it becomes comprehensible that the same kind of reaction against the hostility latent in the unconscious behind the obsessive reproaches of the neurotic should also be necessary here after the painful loss has occurred but this hostility which is painfully felt in the unconscious in the form of satisfaction with the demise experiences a different fate in the case of primitive man the defense against it is accomplished by displacement upon the object of hostility namely the dead we call this defense process frequent both in normal and diseased psychic life a projection the survivor will deny that he has ever entertained hostile impulses toward the beloved dead but now the soul of the deceased entertains them and will try to give vent to them during the entire period of mourning in spite of the successful defense through projection the punitive and remorseful character of this emotional reaction manifests itself in being afraid in self-imposed renunciations and in subjection to restrictions which are partly disguised as protective measures against the hostile demon thus we find again that taboo has grown out of the soil of an ambivalent emotional attitude the taboo of the dead also originates from the opposition between the conscious grief and the unconscious satisfaction at death if this is the origin of the resentment of spirits it is self-evident that just the nearest and formerly most beloved survivors have to fear it most as in neurotic symptoms the taboo regulations also evince opposite feelings their restrictive character expresses mourning while they also betray very clearly what they are trying to conceal namely the hostility towards the dead which is now motivated as self-defense we have learnt to understand part of the taboo regulations as temptation fears a dead person is defenseless which must act as an incitement to satisfy hostile desires entertained against him this temptation has to be opposed by the prohibition but westermark is right in not admitting any difference in the savage's conception between those who have died by violence and those who have died a natural death 
as will be shown later in the unconscious mode of thinking even a natural death is perceived as murder the person was killed by evil wishes any one interested in the origin and meaning of dreams dealing with the death of dear relatives such as parents and brothers and sisters will find that the same feeling of ambivalence is responsible for the fact that the dreamer the child and the savage all have the same attitude towards the dead a little while ago we challenged once conception who explains the nature of taboo through the fear of demons and yet we have just agreed with the explanation which traces back the taboo of the dead to a fear of the soul of the dead after it has turned into a demon this seems like a contradiction but it will not be difficult for us to explain it it is true that we have accepted the idea of demons but we know that this assumption is not something final which psychology cannot resolve into further elements we have as it were exposed the demons by recognizing them as mere projection of hostile feelings which the survivor entertains towards the dead the double feeling tenderness and hostility against the deceased which we consider well-founded endeavors to assert itself at the time of bereavement as mourning and satisfaction a conflict must ensue between these contrary feelings and as one of them namely the hostility is altogether or for the greater part unconscious the conflict cannot result in a conscious difference in the form of hostility or tenderness as for instance when we forgive an injury inflicted upon us by someone we love the process usually adjusts itself through a special psychic mechanism which is designated in psychoanalysis as projection this unknown hostility of which we are ignorant and of which we do not wish to know is projected from our inner perception into the outer world and is thereby detached from our own person and attributed to the other not we the survivors rejoice because we are rid of the deceased on the contrary we mourn for him but now curiously enough he has become an evil demon who would rejoice in our misfortune and who seeks our death the survivors must now defend themselves against this evil enemy they are freed from inner oppression but they have only succeeded in exchanging it for an affliction from without it is not to be denied that this process of projection which turns the dead into malevolent enemies finds some support in the real hostilities of the dead which the survivors remember and with which they really can reproach the dead these hostilities are harshness the desire to dominate injustice and whatever else forms the background of even the most tender relations between men but the process cannot be so simple that this factor alone would explain the origin of demons by projection the offenses of the dead certainly motivate in part the hostility of the survivors but they would have been ineffective if they had not given rise to this hostility and the occasion of death would surely be the least suitable occasion for awakening the memory of the reproaches which justly could have been brought against the deceased we cannot dispense with the unconscious hostility as the constant and really impelling motive this hostile tendency towards those nearest and dearest could remain latent during their lifetime that is to say it could avoid betraying itself to consciousness either directly or indirectly through any substitutive formation however when the person who was simultaneously loved and hated died this was no longer possible and the conflict became acute.
the mourning originating from the enhanced tenderness became on the one hand more intolerant of the latent hostility while on the other hand it could not tolerate that the latter should not give origin to a feeling of pure gratification thus there came about the repression of the unconscious hostility through projection and the formation of the ceremonial in which fear of punishment by demons finds expression with the termination of the period of mourning the conflict also loses its acuteness so that the taboo of the dead can be abated or sink into oblivion four having thus explained the basis on which the very instructive taboo of the dead has grown up we must not miss the opportunity of adding a few observations which may become important for the understanding of taboo in general the projection of unconscious hostility upon demons in the taboo of the dead is only a single example from a whole series of processes to which we must grant the greatest influence in the formation of primitive psychic life in the foregoing case the mechanism of projection is used to settle an emotional conflict it serves the same purpose in a large number of psychic situations which lead to neuroses but projection is not specially created for the purpose of defense it also comes into being where there are no conflicts the projection of inner perceptions to the outside is a primitive mechanism which for instance also influences our sense perceptions so that it normally has the greatest share in shaping our outer world under conditions that have not yet been sufficiently determined even inner perceptions of ideational and emotional processes are projected outwardly like sense perceptions and are used to shape the outer world whereas they ought to remain in the inner world this is perhaps genetically connected with the fact that the function of attention was originally directed not towards the inner world but to the stimuli streaming in from the outer world and only received reports of pleasure and pain from the endopsychic processes only with the development of the language of abstract thought through the association of sensory remnants of word representations with inner processes did the latter gradually become capable of perception before this took place primitive man had developed a picture of the outer world through the outward projection of inner perceptions which we with our reinforced conscious perception must now translate back into psychology the projection of their own evil impulses upon demons is only a part of what has become the world system of primitive man which we shall discuss later as animism we shall then have to ascertain the psychological nature of such a system formation and the points of support which we shall find in the analysis of these system formations will again bring us face to face with the neurosis for the present we merely wish to suggest that the secondary elaboration of the dream content is the prototype of all these system formations and let us not forget that beginning at the stage of system formation there are two origins for every act judged by consciousness namely the systematic and the real but unconscious origin wundt remarks that quote, among the influences which myth everywhere ascribes to demons the evil ones preponderate so that according to the religions of races evil demons are evidently older than good demons now it is quite possible that the whole conception of demons was derived from the extremely important relation to the dead 
in the further course of human development the ambivalence inherent in this relation then manifested itself by allowing two altogether contrary psychic formations to issue from the same root namely the fear of demons and of ghosts and the reverence for ancestors nothing testifies so much to the influence of mourning on the origin of belief in demons as the fact that demons were always taken to be the spirits of persons not long dead mourning has a very distinct psychic task to perform namely to detach the memories and expectations of the survivors from the dead when this work is accomplished the grief and with it the remorse and reproach lessens and therefore also the fear of the demon but the very spirits which at first were feared as demons now serve a friendlier purpose they are revered as ancestors and appealed to for help in times of distress if we survey the relation of survivors to the dead through the course of the ages it is very evident that the ambivalent feeling has extraordinarily abated we now find it easy to suppress whatever unconscious hostility towards the dead there may still exist without any special psychic effort on our part where formerly satisfied hate and painful tenderness struggled with each other we now find piety which appears like a cicatrice and demands de mortuis nil nisi bene only neurotics still blur the mourning for the loss of the dear ones with the attacks of compulsive reproaches which psychoanalysis reveals as the old ambivalent emotional feeling how this change was brought about and to what extent constitutional changes and real improvement of familiar relations share in causing the abatement of the ambivalent feeling need not be discussed here but this example would lead us to assume that the psychic impulses of primitive man possessed a higher degree of ambivalence than is found at present among civilized human beings with the decline of this ambivalence the taboo as the compromise symptom of the ambivalent conflict also slowly disappeared neurotics who are compelled to reproduce this conflict together with the taboo resulting from it may be said to have brought with them an atavistic remnant in the form of an archaic constitution the compensation of which in the interest of cultural demands entails the most prodigious psychic efforts on their part at this point we may recall the confusing information which wundt offered us about the double meaning of the word taboo namely holy and unclean it was supposed that originally the word taboo did not yet mean holy and unclean but signified something demonic something which may not be touched thus emphasizing a characteristic common to both extremes of the later conception this persistent common trait proves however that an original correspondence existed between what was holy and what was unclean which only later became differentiated in contrast to this our discussions readily show that the double meaning in question belonged to the word taboo from the very beginning and that it serves to designate a definite ambivalence as well as everything which has come into existence on the basis of this ambivalence taboo is itself an ambivalent word and by way of supplement we may add that the established meaning of this word might of itself have allowed us to guess what we have found as the result of extensive investigation namely that the taboo prohibition is to be explained as the result of an emotional ambivalence a study of the oldest languages has taught us that at one time there were many such words which included their own contrasts so that they were in a certain sense ambivalent 
though perhaps not exactly in the same sense as the word taboo slight vocal modifications of this primitive word containing two opposite meanings later served to create a separate linguistic expression for the two opposites originally united in one word the word taboo has had a different fate with the diminished importance of the ambivalence which it connotes it has itself disappeared or rather the words analogous to it have vanished from the vocabulary in a later connection i hope to be able to show that a tangible historic change is probably concealed behind the fate of this conception that the word at first was associated with definite human relations which were characterized by great emotional ambivalence from which it expanded to other analogous relations unless we are mistaken the understanding of taboo also throws light upon the nature and origin of conscience without stretching ideas we can speak of a taboo conscience and a taboo sense of guilt after the violation of a taboo taboo conscience is probably the oldest form in which we meet the phenomenon of conscience for what is conscience according to linguistic testimony it belongs to what we know most surely in some languages its meaning is hardly to be distinguished from consciousness conscience is the inner perception of objections to definite wish impulses that exist in us but the emphasis is put upon the fact that this rejection does not have to depend on anything else that it is sure of itself this becomes even plainer in the case of a guilty conscience where we become aware of the inner condemnation of such acts which realized some of our definite wish impulses confirmation seems superfluous here whoever has a conscience must feel in himself the justification of the condemnation and the reproach for the accomplished action but this same characteristic is evidenced by the attitude of savages towards taboo taboo is a command of conscience the violation of which causes a terrible sense of guilt which is as self-evident as its origin is unknown it is therefore probable that conscience also originates on the basis of an ambivalent feeling from quite definite human relations which contain this ambivalence it probably originates under conditions which are in force both for taboo and the compulsion neurosis that is one component of the two contrasting feelings is unconscious and is kept repressed by the compulsive domination of the other component this is confirmed by many things which we have learned from our analysis of neuroses in the first place the character of compulsion neurotics shows a predominant trait of painful conscientiousness which is a symptom of reaction against the temptation which lurks in the unconscious and which develops into the highest degrees of guilty conscience as their illness grows worse indeed one may venture the assertion that if the origin of guilty conscience could not be discovered through compulsion neurotic patients there would be no prospect of ever discovering it this task is successfully solved in the case of the individual neurotic and we are confident of finding a similar solution in the case of races in the second place we cannot help noticing that the sense of guilt contains much of the nature of anxiety without hesitation it may be described as conscience phobia but fear points to unconscious sources the psychology of the neuroses taught us that when wish feelings undergo repression their libido becomes transformed into anxiety in addition we must bear in mind that the sense of guilt also contains something unknown and unconscious 
namely the motivation for the rejection the character of anxiety in the sense of guilt corresponds to this unknown quantity if taboo expresses itself mainly in prohibitions it may well be considered self-evident without remote proof from the analogy with neurosis that it is based on a positive desireful impulse for what nobody desires to do does not have to be forbidden and certainly whatever is expressly forbidden must be an object of desire if we applied this plausible theory to primitive races we would have to conclude that among their strongest temptations were desires to kill their kings and priests to commit incest to abuse their dead and the like that is not very probable and if we should apply the same theory to those cases in which we ourselves seem to hear the voice of conscience most clearly we would arouse the greatest contradiction for there we would assert with the utmost certainty that we did not feel the slightest temptation to violate any of these commandments as for example the commandment thou shalt not kill and that we felt nothing but repugnance at the very idea but if we grant the testimony of our conscience the importance it claims then the prohibition the taboo as well as our moral prohibitions becomes superfluous while the existence of a conscience in turn remains unexplained and the connection between conscience taboo and neurosis disappears the net result of this would then be our present state of understanding unless we view the problem psychoanalytically but if we take into account the following results of psychoanalysis our understanding of the problem is greatly advanced. The analysis of dreams of normal individuals has shown that our own temptation to kill others is stronger and more frequent than we had suspected, and that it produces psychic effects even where it does not reveal itself to our consciousness. And when we have learnt that the obsessive rules of certain neurotics are nothing but measures of self-reassurance and self-punishment erected against the reinforced impulse to commit murder, we can return with fresh appreciation to our previous hypothesis that every prohibition must conceal a desire. We can then assume that this desire to murder actually exists, and that the taboo as well as the moral prohibition are psychologically by no means superfluous, but are, on the contrary, explained and justified through our ambivalent attitude towards the impulse to slay. The nature of this ambivalent relation, so often emphasized as fundamental, namely that the positive underlying desire is unconscious, opens the possibility of showing further connections and explaining further problems the psychic processes in the unconscious are not entirely identical with those known to us from our conscious psychic life but have the benefit of certain notable liberties of which the latter are deprived an unconscious impulse need not have originated where we find it expressed it can spring from an entirely different place and may originally have referred to other persons and relations but through the mechanism of displacement it reaches the point where it comes to our notice thanks to the indestructibility of unconscious processes and their inaccessibility to correction the impulse may be saved over from earlier times to which it was adapted to later periods and conditions in which its manifestations must necessarily seem foreign 
these are all only hints but a careful elaboration of them would show how important they may become for the understanding of the development of civilization in closing these discussions we do not want to neglect to make an observation that will be of use for later investigations even if we insist upon the essential similarity between taboo and moral prohibitions we do not dispute that a psychological difference must exist between them a change in the relations of the fundamental ambivalence can be the only reason why the prohibition no longer appears in the form of a taboo in the analytical consideration of taboo phenomena we have hitherto allowed ourselves to be guided by their demonstrable agreements with compulsion neurosis but as taboo is not a neurosis but a social creation we are also confronted with the task of showing wherein lies the essential difference between the neurosis and a product of culture like the taboo here again i will take a single fact as my starting point Primitive races fear a punishment for the violation of a taboo, usually a serious disease or death. This punishment threatens only him who has been guilty of the violation. It is different with the compulsion neurosis. If the patient wants to do something that is forbidden to him, he does not fear punishment for himself, but for another person. This person is usually indefinite, but by means of analysis is easily recognized as someone very near and dear to the patient. The neurotic, therefore, acts as if he were altruistic, while the primitive man seems egotistical. Only if retribution fails to overtake the taboo violator spontaneously does a collective feeling awaken among savages that they are all threatened through the sacrilege, and they hasten to inflict the omitted punishment themselves. It is easy for us to explain the mechanism of this solidarity. It is a question of fear of the contagious example, the temptation to imitate, that is to say, of the capacity of the taboo to infect. If someone has succeeded in satisfying the repressed desire, the same desire must manifest itself in all his companions. Hence, in order to keep down this temptation, this envied individual must be despoiled of the fruit of his daring. Not infrequently, the punishment gives the executors themselves an opportunity to commit the same sacrilegious act by justifying it as an expiation. This is really one of the fundamentals of the human code of punishment, which rightly presumes the same forbidden impulses in the criminal and in the members of society who avenge his offense. Psychoanalysis here confirms what the pious were wont to say, that we are all miserable sinners. How then shall we explain the unexpected nobility of the neurosis, which fears nothing for itself and everything for the beloved person? Psychoanalytic investigation shows that this nobility is not primary. Originally, that is to say at the beginning of the disease, the threat of punishment pertained to one's own person. In every case, the fear was for one's own life, the fear of death being only later displaced upon another beloved person. The process is somewhat complicated, but we have a complete grasp of it. An evil impulse, a death wish, towards the beloved person is always at the basis of the formation of a prohibition. This is repressed through a prohibition, and the prohibition is connected with a certain act, which by displacement usually substitutes the hostile for the beloved person, and the execution of this act 
is threatened with the penalty of death but the process goes further and the original wish for the death of the beloved other person is then replaced by fear for his death the tender altruistic trait of the neurosis therefore merely compensates for the opposite attitude of brutal egotism which is at the basis of it if we designate as social those emotional impulses which are determined through regard for another person who is not taken as a sexual object we can emphasize the withdrawal of these social factors as an essential feature of the neurosis which is later disguised through overcompensation without lingering over the origin of these social impulses and their relation to other fundamental impulses of man we will bring out the second main characteristic of the neurosis by means of another example the form in which taboo manifests itself has the greatest similarity to the touching phobia of neurotics the délire de toucher as a matter of fact this neurosis is regularly concerned with the prohibition of sexual touching and psychoanalysis has quite generally shown that the motive power which is deflected and displaced in the neurosis is of sexual origin in taboo the forbidden contact has evidently not only sexual significance but rather the more general one of attack of acquisition and of personal assertion if it is prohibited to touch the chief or something that was in contact with him it means that an inhibition should be imposed upon the same impulse which on other occasions expresses itself in suspicious surveillance of the chief and even in physical ill-treatment of him before his coronation thus the preponderance of sexual components of the impulse over the social components is the determining factor of the neurosis but the social impulses themselves came into being through the union of egotistical and erotic components into special entities from this single example of a comparison between taboo and compulsion neurosis it is already possible to guess the relation between individual forms of the neurosis and the creations of culture and in what respect the study of the psychology of the neurosis is important for understanding of the development of culture in one way the neuroses show a striking and far-reaching correspondence with the great social productions of art religion and philosophy while again they seem like distortions of them we may say that hysteria is a caricature of an artistic creation a compulsion neurosis a caricature of a religion and a paranoic delusion a caricature of a philosophic system in the last analysis this deviation goes back to the fact that the neuroses are asocial formations they seek to accomplish by private means what arose in society through collective labor in analyzing the impulse of the neuroses one learns that motive powers of sexual origin exercise the determining influence in them while the corresponding cultural creations rest upon social impulses and on such as have issued from the combination of egotistical and sexual components it seems that the sexual need is not capable of uniting men in the same way as the demands of self-preservation sexual satisfaction is in the first place the private concern of the individual genetically the asocial nature of the neurosis springs from its original tendency to flee from a dissatisfying reality to a more pleasurable world of fantasy this real world which neurotics shun is dominated by the society of human beings 
and by the institutions created by them. The estrangement from reality is at the same time a withdrawal from human companionship. This is the end of Part 3 of Chapter 2 and the end of Chapter 2 as a whole. Read by Mary Schneider.